Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgia was once a leader in the oyster canning business, but that last cannery closed in the 1960s. Over the past few decades, the local bivalves have gotten a bad rap. Too wild, too muddy, too much work. So you don't see them popping up on a lot of menus. But over the past few years, a group of people attuned to the estuaries of Glynn, Camden, Liberty, and McIntosh counties have helped revive oyster farming in Georgia. I said, this is my last chance. If I can't make it now, I mean, what can I lose? I might as well go out trying. That is Ernest McIntosh Sr. speaking to our GPB colleagues. One of many stories told in the book High Low Tide, The Revival of a Southern Oyster. I spoke to author Andre Gallant from WUGA in Athens. Andre, hello. Hello. And Brian Rackley. He's co-owner of Kimball House, a Decatur restaurant known for its oysters and where Ernest McIntosh's oysters are now on the menu. Hello, Brian. Hey, Virginia. How are you? Very well, and so excited about this. This is a topic I knew nothing about, and that, that's something that comes across, Andre. So a little spoiler alert here. You do reveal that Georgia has a coast, a number of people <laughs> that we meet in your book get asked about that by people who don't realize that Georgia's 100 miles of coastline offers oysters. Why not? That's a great question. Um, but I I thought it was, wasn't true for as many times as I heard that. Um, from folks down the coast. But then, uh, as I detail in the book, I attended an event at the state capitol where there were elected officials asking oystermen about how the waters down in Apalachicola were treating their oysters. And it just made me realize that a number of folks could use a, a geography lesson. <laughs> Andre, about 100 years ago, Georgia's oyster industry was quite robust. So can you take us back to that era? What was going on and what did it mean for the coast? So the United States has had a, a historic oyster industry going back decades and decades, overfishing and uh, development in New York, and then the Virginia Chesapeake Bay area caused those oyster areas to decline. And Georgia was well positioned to take up the mantle. The Georgia oyster, which, as you described earlier, was not like those big oysters up in New England or in the Gulf are. But it's perfect for canning because it's so abundant in our in our estuaries. They grow on top of each other. It's hard to stop them from growing here. So that allowed cannery after cannery to open. So if you go back to the 1900s from Charleston down to Jacksonville, all those small little communities um, had little canneries that employed dozens of folks. Hmm. And then what happened to the industry? There were some early, you know, health scares. A lot of bad press followed. And then, honestly, people after World War II stopped eating um, canned oysters. The just consumer taste changed. And then the big thing that impacts the fishing communities here is in the 1960s is that we have changes in uh, minimum wage laws, right? So people working in canneries were usually poor, often African-American, especially in the South. And they were paid piecework, you know. They, were, they didn't make a lot of money. And so these new laws come into effect, and so the, the canneries no longer have a, a cheap workforce. And then it just slowly starts to decline as Asian imported seafood picks up. Brian, I want to go back to what Andre said about this hard to get them on the half shell, this, this too wild, too much work, possibly unattractive to businesses or consumers. What is the Georgia oyster like? 
The wild Georgia oyster is it's basically just like a muddy cluster. And, you know, we're, we're not so prim and proper that we can't handle a little bit of dirt. The mud's not really the issue. It's just the fact that they're all basically glued together. And in order for you to put them on a tray of ice in a context where raw oysters are being sold as raw oysters, it would require a phenomenal amount of labor to do that. You have to basically just chip them apart with some sort of tool. And we're just not equipped to do that. And I think that for that reason, those oysters have always had a more a more esoteric culinary purpose and, and they just find themselves being roasted uh, in those clumps rather than someone trying to utilize them in a restaurant. Well, Andre writes about every oyster having a distinctive taste. So what does an oyster from Georgia taste like, Brian? Georgia oysters do have a, a, a really nice salinity for the most part. Uh, I do find them to be saltier than stuff that's uh, being raised in the Gulf. They still have this sort of clean, a lot of times, like kind of a, a wild spring onion character to them that I think is really neat. And a lot of them will always kind of present like a little bit of a, like a buttery note, which I think is really cool too. Well, sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's an industry that, you know, everybody who's listening to this should be tapping their fingers, wondering where it's at. How come <laughs> it's not here? And, you know, Andre's probably better equipped to answer that question of why isn't it here? But... Um, you know, it's something that people need to know about. Let's talk then yes. about the economics <laughs> of oysters. How how big is the industry and are a lot of Georgians actually able to make a living working the waters? Well, currently we um, only have about 10 leaseholders in the state. And so the lease is the area where um, an oysterman works. And that is controlled by the Department of Natural Resources. And because um, the workforce is getting a little bit older, there aren't too many uh, young folks getting into it. Wild harvest, there's just not a lot of money in it. It's a lot of hard work. Um, you maybe make somewhere between 50 and and $100 for a big, heavy bushel of oysters, um, depending on your clients. The industry itself is quite small, and it's why folks are so excited about uh, oyster farming or aquaculture coming, because it will effectively double the amount of money they can make per oyster. And it also, because of the way oyster farming is done, it's a, it's a much more manageable process. You don't have to always depend on the tides and you don't have to sit out there under the sun cranking away at, at oyster mounds. A lot of it's, it becomes more of a, a gardening technique or like a tending instead of this very manually oriented sweaty work. For decades, restaurants considered Georgia oysters more trouble than they were worth. But oyster aquaculture is a fledgling movement dedicated to putting more local oysters on the table. Andre Gallant wrote about the eager coalition of people helping to cultivate these briny bivalves in his book, A High Low Tide. Brian Rackley is a local oyster booster and co-owner of the restaurant Kimball House. So, Andre, among the many characters that we meet, Justin Manley is one that you credit as the first person to farm Georgia oysters. He's now hatchery manager at the University of Georgia Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. So what possessed him to start farming oysters in the state? He moved down here um, to attend grad school in Savannah, um, and he was already quite obsessive about aquaculture and oysters, you know, he had already decided to to make oysters his life. And he got down here and I believe he was at a, um, an oyster roast and was inquiring about where the oysters came from, knowing that, you know, Georgia does have a coast. And when he found out they were from away, he was flabbergasted because, you know, he could just take one look at our marshes here and he could see 
the relative lack of development. And just it was obvious to him that this was prime oyster growing grounds. All of those who were watermen down there who worked the 100 mile coast, they watched him as he was yeah. experimenting with it. So how did he develop his techniques of oyster farming? Well, his techniques were based on a French method, which is used in, in various ways. It's essentially called collecting spat, which is the spawn of the oyster. The oysters start spawning in the late spring and do so over the summer. And essentially, he was doing what he does now in a hatchery, but just out in the wild, using plastic um, to collect little tiny baby oysters and growing them until they got viable and then moving them into uh, bags where they could grow fat and healthy. Essentially just adapting what the oyster does naturally. A, a wild oyster will just find whatever decent surface it can to glom onto, even as small as a you know microscopic grain of sand. He was just cobbling together a, a method that was very well in use around the world and in this country already, but because of aquaculture hadn't been introduced to Georgia and was not being allowed due to regulations, he had to do this crazy roundabout way that added hours and hours um, in, into his work life. But he was dedicated to do it because he, he knows that the, the Georgia oyster is something that should return to prominence. Your book reveals a whole system, not just the people who are harvesting or farming, but the researchers, the aquaculture scientists who work collaboratively with harvesters making this or to make the Georgia selfish business, shellfish business competitive. That mm -hmm. is a really tense relationship in some places. How does it work in Georgia? I think you could describe it as contentious because watermen, they're a, a special breed. Um, folks who work the water are tough and they're opinionated and they don't like to be pushed around. And, you know, because they're dealing with a, a, a food business, they have to deal with regulators, right? Um, and then they, then there are these, you know, the university researchers who are, you know, they have PhDs, you know, where these guys went to the school of hard knocks. Um, so they don't quite see eye to eye on everything. Um what that means is that someone working in extension like Justin Manley um, has to kind of, one, tread slowly and, and speak a special language. And I think it helps when folks who are trying to aid in the industry have experience in the industry like Justin did. Brian, for you, a lot of your business, I would imagine, is about the relationships with those who are farming. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it is for me. Um, I mean, you, you, have to, you should always be aware of the, the risk and the dangers of eating raw, any sort of raw protein. But, you know, I just, have, I just always felt like we could eliminate some of the risk variables by knowing who we were buying from, knowing how they, how they, knowing what type of steward they were, knowing how they treated their lease. I mean, I think Kimball House has the best oyster list in the city, if not the southeast. And I don't think that that's because... I'm capable of picking up a phone or sending an email. I think it's because we work with the best farmers. Oysters have become this symbol of wealth and classiness, you know, for lack of a better word, that if you see a movie scene and they're trying to depict that it's a fancy party, it's oysters on a half shell. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I struggle with because I wish that it was a, a food source that was not alienating from a, a, a price standpoint. And, you know, hopefully that's something that, that we can sort of work through as the industry gets a little bit more mature uh, and we're looking for ways to use uh, use oysters differently. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, one of the biggest differences between wild oysters and cultured oysters is the fact that you do have to make a pretty large investment in equipment and seed and those sorts of inventory items and it's not without a uh, considerable startup cost. 
Andrzej, this revival surely didn't come easily. And But is it a revival? How far along is it? Where do you think the revival of the oyster farming along the Georgia coast is now? Well, I think you can say that the 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 a large uh, a boom is is set to begin, um, and it's just waiting on some regulations to be rewritten. The DNR is moving slowly, and I think some would say far too slowly, in changing um, some of the regulations that would allow oyster farmers, um, and they're doing so because they want it to be right for our marsh which, you know, I can respect. But I think for the, the folks who are ready to start making a living and ready to invest, it's moving a little bit too slowly because especially when you can look one state over in South Carolina that um, just as rapidly is um, leapfrogging us in terms of aquaculture. Um, but the other element in this is um, is the workforce because they're, um, you know, rural populations. You know, when we're talking about the coast, we're, you know, we, we talk about Savannah, but what we're, we really are talking about tiny, tiny, tiny little towns that don't have um, a lot of places for folks to work. And young people are leaving. They're leaving in droves. And it would behoove the state to get oyster farming set up as quickly as possible to give some lifelines, one, to these young peoples and entrepreneurs. And this industry could still tank unless we get people willing to devote their lives to it. And I think, you know, the other the other half of this equation is getting people who, like um, Brian said, not just a bunch of rich folks in here, but people who are, you know, authentically of the Georgia coast and have, have a lineage in um, the marshes. Um, the Macintoshes who we heard from are, are, you know, are a great example of this. And they deserve great success. And I think there are other people who can, you know, and fit a similar bill and get promoted by the state and really put us back on the map. Andre Gallant, thank you so much. And thank you very much. Andre Gallant is the author of the book, A High Low Tide, The Revival of a Southern Oyster. Brian Rackley, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Brian Rackley, he's co-owner of Kimball House in Decatur, where you can go slurp Georgia oysters on the half shell. Stay with us for a conversation with Leah Penniman, who wants to revive another tradition of farming while black. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 1920, African-American farmers owned 14% of all American farmland. Today, that is just 2%. The vast majority of them are in the South, according to census data drawn from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The book Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms' Practical Guide to Liberation of the Land, encourages a new generation of black farmers. Author and Soul Fire Farm co-founder Leah Penniman places ownership of land and production of healthy food squarely on the path of self-determination for people of color. And she joined us via Skype from Petersburg, New York, to talk about it. Leah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And you actually grew up in rural Massachusetts, surrounded by forest. And increasingly, I think, in that part of the world, second homes. Tell us a little bit about your childhood there. Well, I grew up in a very poor, working-class white town in the forest of central Massachusetts. And our family was the only mixed-race family in town for almost all of my childhood. So needless to say, in such a conservative area, uh, peers were cruel and friends were hard to come by. And so my siblings and I found solace in connecting with the natural world. And it became the foundation of a lifelong commitment to environmental stewardship and relationship with the land. Did you ever think of yourself becoming a farmer? Oh, no. No, my grandparents 
fled the red clays of the South and tried to get as far away as they could from that life of stooping and sharecropping. And so I envisioned myself as, you know, an environmental scientist or wildlife biologist. I had never considered farming as a young person. When you first became involved with farming and food justice, this is through a project, the Food Project in Boston, Massachusetts. What does food justice mean for you? Well, Food justice is not just access to food, not just having enough calories and vitamins and minerals. It's really about agency and self-determination in the food system. It has to do with ownership of land, fair wages and good working conditions for farm workers, and the ability to have diets that are culturally relevant um, and that bring nourishment and life for our people. Well, you do quote somebody, I can't remember who it is in the book, that says, you can be killed by a gun or killed by bad food. Do you, do you think people in especially contemporary America associate food with activism? You know, a lot of people look at me with surprise when I talk about racial injustice in the food system because they never think about food as a political issue. But of course, it very much is. I mean, everything from the skewed uh, racial divisions in land ownership in this country, where well over 90, 95% of the rural land is controlled by white folks, to the fact that if you're a person of color, you know, you're you only have a 25, you're only 25% as likely to have a supermarket in your neighborhood as a white person. And so all along the entire food system, there's racial schism and there's disadvantage for folks of color. So it's a very political sphere. So it is political and it is contemporary. But as you are working on other rural farms in the Northeast after the food project, this was for you kind of an awakening to understanding sustainable agriculture differently. How did you, how did your own process evolve? Mm. Well, I'll tell you, from the very first time that the smell of cilantro lingered in the creases of my fingers after that first day at the food project, I was totally hooked on farming. Hmm. It was a space where I could do what the two things I love most. I could care for the environment and I could stand up for justice in the community because we took all of that produce and we you know, served it at low-income farmers markets and and in soup kitchens and so on. And so I continued to farm, but it was disillusioning, honestly, um, in my later teens and early, early 20s, because unlike the food project, most farms were very white spaces. And I started to feel like a traitor to my people that I had to choose between the earth and racial justice. I didn't see another intersection until, you know, until we created it. And you did create that in uh, Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York. And the photographs, this is a, a book. It's like a practical guide. You get, you know, advice on finding land and financing and purchasing and planting fruit trees and all sorts of things, establishing land trust, determining slopes for irrigation. What for you, Leah, was the biggest revelation or learning curve? Oh, my goodness. So many. I mean... This land first claimed us back in 2006, and we had very little pocket money. We'd been saving by having our family of four live in a, you know, one room all together, these <laughs> dilapidated buildings, and and this land was what we could afford. And the the reason that we really started it in the first place is because it was very difficult for us to get food to eat for our own children living in the south end of Albany, which is what the USDA terms a food desert. And our neighbors started clamoring and saying, we need you to start a farm that will bring food to us, to our block, to our doorsteps. So that was our vision. And we were we were pretty naive about the amount of work it would take and the cost. And even with a decade of farming experience, you know, it was it was a lot. So I would say the biggest learning curve was the amount of grit that it takes to really actualize a vision of food justice, not just theorize about it. Well, and there's a lot of practical tips and resources in the books and a lot of photographs of you all farming. And you just look impossibly sparklingly healthy and happy. <laughs> 
but the, but there is like a, a strong collective. We get a lot of history here. Of, for example, black tenant farmers unions, cooperatives among black farmers and land trusts, like the New Communities Farm Collective in Southwest Georgia. This was started in 1969. Tell us about the founding of that, and what were the founders aiming for? Absolutely. Well, I've, I've had the blessing and privilege to get to know Mama Shirley Sherrod in the past few years and have been at some convenings of black farmers in the state of Georgia uh, discussing the, our future on land. But this project started well before I was born in 1969. And uh, Shirley Sherrod and Charles Sherrod and many others, in fact, 500 black families got together and said, we need a way uh, to have more self-sufficiency because as sharecroppers and tenant farmers, we're noticing that as soon as we get involved in civil rights, we are kicked off of our land and out of our homes by the white landowners. And so we need a space of our own. And they traveled to Israel and other places around the world to see models of collective land ownership and settled on creating the very first community land trust. They had almost 6,000 acres in Albany, Georgia. As I mentioned, 500 families. They were running a farm, building houses. Um, and that was a big threat to the status quo in the white supremacist self. And so they experienced a lot of violence. Um, in fact, bombing and diluting of their fertilizers um, and eventually lost their land. And they, they became some of the lead plaintiffs in suing the federal government for discrimination in the Pigford v. Glickman case, which which became the largest civil rights settlement in the history of this country. Yeah. Give us a little bit of background on this case. Absolutely. So, you know, for folks who don't know, farming is a, a highly subsidized and highly regulated industry. And so the U.S. Department of Agriculture and its big piece of legislation, the Farm Bill, provide billions of dollars of support for farmers. You know, everything from crop insurance to uh, loans, crop allotments, technical assistance. And, and these are entitlement programs. Farmers are supposed to be able to get them. But because they're controlled at the county level and uh, people's individual and collective bias can creep in, what's happened over the decades is black farmers have been excluded from these programs. So, you know, there'll be a drought and a white farmer will go into the county office and get a nice loan for irrigation and a black farmer will have their application denied. And the cumulative effect of this was the loss of 14 million acres of land through foreclosure and displacement. So farmers got together finally and said, this is enough. You know, in 1962, the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights found that the federal government was the number one cause of the decline of the black farmer. Um, it took decades to pull together the evidence, but eventually the USDA, you know, admitted that that they were at fault and, and paid $2 billion to the claimants um, in 1999. Go. It was too little too late because these farmers were in their 90s and they each got $50,000 and so on. Uh, but it was important symbolic victory to say, you know, we didn't leave the land volunteer voluntarily. It really was um, a refugee crisis, essentially a foreclosure crisis. Right. So this is, you know, not just your opinion or the opinion of activists, but this was found uh, the data was all pulled together and the court of law settled for the plaintiffs. But how about opportunities after Pigford? Has anything changed inside of those policies? That's a great question. You know, to the USDA's credit, some things certainly have changed. Um, the 2501 program, which is for disadvantaged farmers, including minority farmers, you know, has some increased funding. They are paying attention and collecting more statistics around uh the race and ethnicity of folks who are receiving funding. But, you know, uh, together with Yes Magazine just a couple of years ago, we did a little number crunching to see if the actual result was different in terms of who was getting the funds. And there still is a lot of disparity in all of the programs, except for the EQIP, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. There is racial disparity in all other programs. So there's a long way to go, even though the intention is now there. Um, yeah, and we did meet in the South, you know, something that 
that I love, I love to think about is my generation as the returning generation of black farmers, mm. you know, our, our grandparents fled the South and we're now realizing that, that our grandparents left a little piece of our heritage, our culture, even our souls behind. And we're looking to reclaim that. So the big work right now is to get these northerners from many, many of whom are urban and who are getting a start in urban farming to connect with the, the legacy farmers in the South and try to figure out things like land transfer and skills transfer. The average age of black farmers in the U.S. is now 62. And we're talking with Leah Penniman, who's urging a new generation of people of color to farm not just for food production, but for liberation, as she says, continuing an historical legacy of farming while black. And that is the name of her new book. But but let's get to that, uh, Leah. I mean, besides policies dissuading black farmers, how about that perception, maybe particularly in the South, that farming is too country, too mired in associations of poverty and limited choices, and as you said, you know, stooping over the fields? Mm, oh, that is so true. You know, as my good friend, urban farmer Chris Bolden Newsom says, the land was the scene of the crime. Mm. But I would add to that the land was not the criminal. You know, so while we did experience hundreds of years of slavery and sharecropping and tenant farming and violence when we tried to own our own land, driving us off, that's not the whole history. You know, if we reach back beyond and around that, we have thousands of years of noble legacy of being connected to and innovating on land. You know, everything from vermicomposting, which is composting with worms, to raised beds, to rotating crops, these have roots in African agricultural wisdom. And that's the part of the story that's not often told. And a big part of why I wrote Farming While Black was to uplift these noble and dignified narratives of the way we've been connected to land as Black people. Well, and some of the examples you give in addition to Soul Fire Farm are the Kombahi River, am I saying that right? Kombahi River community? <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> Tell us about the women in this community and what they stood for. Oh, I mean, there were just so many examples of collective land ownership and farming going back. So this was during the Civil War. You know, a lot of men were away fighting and the women said, you know, we're not going to work for white folks. We're actually going to go get our own land and create our own enterprises and work together. And they became a model and an inspiration for many generations to come. You know, they were an inspiration to Fannie Lou Hamer, who started the Freedom Farm Cooperative. Um, they were an inspiration to the Rap Road community in Albany, which were some Mississippi sharecroppers who came up to our area and formed their own community. And so uh, there's a lot of examples of, of autonomy and collectivism throughout our history. And individuals like Mama Isola, who's now 80, um, she led a workshop on pickling that you write about in the book. Is it, is it hard to find people with institutional knowledge like her now? Mama Isola, who is a wonderful, wonderful elder, you know, she grew up in a time where they grew everything. You know, the only thing they went to the store to buy was sugar and flour and everything else from the hogs to the vegetables was grown on the farm. Uh, so she came to our farm and, and taught us how to can and pickle and uh, preserve our food. And it was just so wonderful because while you can learn those things on the internet, there is so much cultural knowledge that's passed on when you get face to face with an elder. And elders are not hard to find. In fact, I think that a big mistake that the younger generation of activists makes is ignoring and excluding and invisibilizing our elders. And we need to make sure that we are sitting at their feet and not making the same mistakes they did because we actually take the time to listen to them. But you also use YouTube videos for your education, right? <laughs> yes. <of course. laughs> Getting it from everywhere. But this is interesting, you know, when in that segment, and of course I was reading about fermentation again, because fermentation is a thing, but you bring up this association of healthy cooking and food preservation as a white people thing. How do you, you know, 
undo that kind of association? How do you build a different narrative? I mean, it's a great question because it really is a myth that healthy cooking and preservation is a white people thing. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to do. So we have a legacy of making healthy foods. You know, I a big shout out to the Old Ways um, organization because they've created food pyramids based on African heritage cooking and, and other cuisines around the world to remind us that, you know, it's not the USDA that's defining what healthy is that our ancestors really have known. And, and the way that we shift that is by actually creating those culturally relevant foods in a healthy manner. Like we don't need it to be kale salad and sunflower butter around our table. You know, we can we can make our derriac pois, we can make our pois congo, like our Haitian foods using these local healthy vegetables. And that's familiar to our palates and to the palates of our children. And they will embrace that. Well, there's so many aspects to this. In fact, there's a chapter in the book on healing from trauma. Uh, Mm -hmm. Would you talk to us about how farming can be both healing and in some ways re-traumatizing and how you have been able to find healing? Well, yeah, something that's been really amazing is we've been running um, these week-long beginner farmer training programs now for several years. We've had 500 people come through. And I started out being very focused, exclusively focused on teaching folks things like cation exchange capacity and how to interpret your soil test. But then in the feedback forums, people would say, you know, after a week on the land, I'm going to put down my cigarettes or my marijuana and not do that anymore. I'm going to leave this toxic, abusive marriage. I'm going to leave this dead-end job. I'm not settling anymore, so on and so forth. And I'm like, what is going on here? And this gets this diverges from the science a bit, but I really believe what our ancestors have believed, that, that the earth herself is alive, not just a material being, and that she has lessons for us about who we're meant to be and that we belong and how to heal. So when we actually make that introduction back to the land and we have our bare feet on the earth and we breathe that fresh air, there's a remembering of things we didn't know we forgot and a healing that just emerges. And I wouldn't say this if it hasn't happened a thousand times, but it has every single time. So I really do think that when we're able to come to land on our own terms, like we chose, no one made us come and we're growing food for our own communities, um, the land is able to do that healing and it's actually not re-traumatizing. It's, it's profoundly spiritual, it's profoundly emotional, and it's really where we need to be headed as a people. Well, Leah Penniman, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Leah Penniman is co-founder of Soul Fire Farm. Her most recent book is called Farming While Black. Just ahead, go inside this weekend's Momocon with voice actor Bob Carter. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Calling all anime, gaming, comic, and animation fans. This is your weekend. Momocon 2019 kicks off in Atlanta tomorrow. Voice actors, showrunners, designers, and writers take animation enthusiasts behind the scenes, making one of the fastest-growing all-ages conventions in the country. GPB's Kalina Buller, host of the Credits Podcast, sat down with voice actor Bob Carter ahead of the convention. How in the world, because it's the million dollar question, how did you get your start in voiceover work? Ah, how did I get my start in voiceover? I actually got my start in voiceover in college radio. Uh, way back when, back in the days, uh, Album 88 from Georgia State University. And I'm actually still in radio, so I still broadcast. So like most people know me as Carter. I actually broadcast all over the Southeast. But I also had a TV show here, Campus Live, all over the state of Georgia. And then I also got involved with um, improv comedy. And so from all the different things that I was involved with, I ended up making friends who were actors and performers, and they ended up getting into anime. And so from those relationships, I would go in and constantly try to be the good guy. And I would try to get cast as a hero in an anime. But guess what? When you have a deep voice, they don't necessarily want you to be the hero. They want you to be the villain because you sound more imposing and more ominous and more terrifying. And so it wasn't until like my 50-something audition (laughs) that I finally realized, hey, it's good to be the bad guy. Villains have the best dialogue. (laughs) That's that's actually true. (laughs) Yes. 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 I mean, you know, like when you can tell somebody to their face, I will destroy you. I will crush you. Love it. (laughs) You suck. You know, all those things. You (laughs) suck. Yeah. Right? So when I can just say that to somebody's face, it's always fun. Right. (laughs) I want to ask you, because I'm curious. Mm -hmm. What was it like working on Mortal Kombat? I love Mortal Kombat. (laughs) I mean, I don't play. I'll tell you this. I don't play video games. I am more of that person that like watches oh, yeah. and goes, yeah, you know, like yes. that sort of thing. So when my cousins and stuff used to play Mortal Kombat, that was my <laughs> game. Yeah. I was the biggest Mortal Kombat cheerleader. Of course. Yeah. I loved it. Thank Katana you. is everything. Okay. Yeah. She's everything. <laughs> what was it like even working on a project like that? It was phenomenal. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, it's the role of a lifetime. And actually, to be not just one, but two characters in Mortal Kombat 9, I was the voice of Baraka, right? So, you overreach your station, Adenian, right? The, so, like, you know, I've yes. got the blades that come out of the arms and slicing people up and just tearing them up. But also, the final boss, Shao Kahn. So, oh, Shao Kahn. I am Shao Kahn, so. <laughs> Kalina wins flawless victory. <laughs> one of my greatest joys is making people rage quit. I'm not lying. I love it. So when I see people <laughs> posting up on YouTube and they're crying and they're breaking their controllers, that sort of thing, a lot of times I would post up video or I'd post up audio over their video, oh mocking them and laughing as Shao Kahn, which, oh again, God. is very similar to my voice, right? Right. I'll I make, make sure God, to keep so it kind of in the same register because I want that lifetime impact. So that way, whenever people hear me, they're going to have that <laughs> visceral, primal reaction to the sound of my voice. Given that I have my career in the film and television side of yes, things, yes, yes, uh, you know, you know, at least on my end, that the gaming world is right there on the periphery. Like I can mm-hmm. literally reach out and touch somebody who's in this world. Yes, but I never really stopped to think about how huge it's become. Absolutely. Um, I mean. It's outstanding. It sounds like it's cr- whole competitions. Yes, entire competitions. So the stuff that we see, like on the, on those uh, ESPN type channels, yes. yeah. they do that here. They're doing that here. As a matter of fact, you've got 
colleges and universities now, uh, especially competitive colleges mm. and universities. Let me tell you, there's a serious rivalry right now between Kennesaw State and Georgia State. Shut up. I'm not kidding. It's, <laughs> it is serious. It's like as big as Georgia and Alabama in SEC what? football. But there's, really? I mean, it's a serious rivalry. Yeah, KSU and GSU. Serious things are happening between those two teams uh, as far as various eSport, the, the games that they play. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also got these other um, tournaments and competitions that are all beginning to arise now from all of this collegiate level uh, activity, but a lot of it culminates here in Momocon. And so you're yeah. going to have these competitions and tournaments happening, not just on one day of the convention, but actually throughout the entire convention this time. So this is a big deal. You've Ooh. got individual participants, you've got different teams that are not just with colleges and universities, but professional esports uh, teams that are going to be participating. Mm-hmm. So it's a big deal. And then now, you said you're part of the, the, the TV and film industry. Correct. So you know how big the tax credit has been Huge, right, yes. in terms mm-hmm. of people coming to Georgia. Well, guess what? That also applies to the gaming industry. And so that's where we were able to go from five video game companies to 130-something, I think, this year. Are here. Are here in Georgia. And they're doing well. They're thriving. And in fact, it's expanding so much that on this uh, this Thursday, um, May 23rd, for the for the first day of Momocon, mm-hmm. we're actually having a career fair, uh, a career fair for the gaming industry, for various production studios that are in town. We're looking for designers. We're looking for writers. Um, neighborhood Studio will be there, which is my company. We do post-production. And so, for instance, you've got the tax credit, which is 30%. Well, right. guess what? There's an extra 5% for post-production to be done here in Georgia, which is what my company is going for. And so we're looking to expand as well, my company personally. I need everybody at this career <laughs> fair. Like, I, yes. I'm going to the career fair. Yes. I mean, this is crazy. Yeah, it's a huge opportunity. And so that's what the career fair is for between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. So there's a huge opportunity uh, with the gaming communities, um, with the production communities, with right. writers, with a lot of different industries that are involved. So, and, and this, I'm so glad you bring this up yes. because... What do you foresee happening in the future in gaming? In your living room, or imagine in your movie room, okay? Uh, What's about to happen in the next 10 to 15 years is going to change media as we know it. Imagine the difference between black and white TV and color. Remember the difference, like that transition. Mm -hmm. Now imagine the difference between our generation and the next where somebody says... What do you mean you only used to watch TV on a wall, on one wall? Because it's going to be immersive. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen is imagine some kind of a big, massive subwoofer in the center of the room, Mm -hmm. and it's going to project on all four walls because we're starting to move into this 360-degree space. Okay. So it's almost like a hollow room or a hollow deck where you're going to stand in the room or sit in the room, and the entertainment is going to happen in 360 degrees all around you. It's going to play out on all four walls Hmm. all around you in your room, and... That's the future of creative media. And so you need to be working towards that, being able to draw for that, like animation, or being able to write for that, or being able to film that, or being able to record sound in 360 degrees. Hmm. So that's part of what the career fair at Momocon is all about, to tie things Listen, back. let's go to Momocon, everybody, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much. Absolutely. That is voice actor Bob Carter speaking with Kalina Buller, host of GPB's The Credits Podcast. Take a little jazz, soul, classical, and pop, mix it together, and what do you get? Candice Springs.
That's Don't Need the Real Thing from Candace Spring's new album, Indigo. She was signed to Blue Note Records in 2014, a label known for recording jazz greats from John Coltrane to Herbie Hancock. And she's performing this Sunday at the annual Atlanta Jazz Festival. We spoke to her from Philadelphia to talk about her latest album, Indigo. Candace, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? Great. Great to speak with you. Who grew up around music? I guess your dad was a singer. What, what did he do? He's an incredible singer. He goes by Scat Springs, and he's like my biggest inspiration. And, uh, you know, thanks to him, I'm in this industry and learned so much about it because of him. Well, growing up with a dad named Scat Springs, did you have any choice? <laughs> I guess not, huh? So. <laughs> who did he, he sang himself, but he also sang, I guess, backup. Who, who was around that you, you knew through your dad? Well, he sang, he sang back up for Aretha Franklin, Chaka Khan, to Brian McKnight, Michael McDonald, to all the country stars since we live in Nashville, like Garth Brooks, Vince Gill, Faith Hill. And yeah, I've heard of those people. Many more. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's gotten around, for sure. Was singing always the goal for you? Um, actually, it really wasn't. Like, first I got into playing piano, and I was like, I'll just be happy, you know, being a musician, playing. And then my dad pushed me to sing. He's like, you need to sing, Candace, because it'll open up your world even more. Because I guess he's a singer, so he'd know he'd know best, huh? So, so I guess so. But do you remember that first performance, not just playing the piano, but singing? It, well, yeah, I do. I was about fourteen when I finally got the strength to sing. I've been playing since I played piano since I was ten years old, and I play a lot of jazz. My influences are Nina Simone, Roberta Flack, Sade, mm. uh, Bill Evans, Luther Vandross, and many more. I love classical like Chopin and Rachmaninoff and stuff. But singing and really. Uh, came along later in my early teens, I'd say, around 13, 14. Well, it seems you caught on because we've got a, a song from your newest record, Indigo, uh, reflecting a lot of influence, I'd say, jazz to R&B to classical. Here is the first time ever I saw your face. First time ever I saw Boy, that's a song made famous by Roberta Flack, sung there by my guest Candace Springs. Really strong connection, I think, to the music of the past. How do you make that new? What does that mean to you? Man, <laughs> just listening to them and taking bits and pieces of what they gave to this world, you know, and still still give. Um, I've, you know, developed my own sound over time. But, I mean, Roberta is the queen, you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, I have so much respect for what she does. I love how she makes such timeless music, and that's ultimately what I want to do. Yeah, well, you're from Nashville, so-called Music City, cradle of America's country music. <laughs> but what drew you to, you know, deep soul music like that and jazz tunes? <laughs> um... I guess, again, going back to my father, he's a soul singer, but he's gotten around as far as like different, there's a lot of music there, especially now. It's grown, Nashville's grown so much. And um, there's everything from R&B, soul, gospel, blues, country, Americana, everything. And uh, you get a little of everything when you go. You can just walk down the street and almost everybody can pick up a guitar and play. Almost everybody can sit down and write a song. <laughs> so mm. It's almost inevitable. So surrounded by music. Well, you mentioned loving Roberta Flack and, and Nina Simone. Uh, Nina Simone, somebody who strikes me that you could not 
peg into a genre. That's right. And I really, really love that about her. She's almost like her own like hybrid, I guess you could say. And I guess my new record's sort of like that. It goes all over the place. It's from classical like she does. She's an incredible pianist. And um, also to Bossa Nova, kind of all of that, everything. So, mm. Well, some of the reviews say your music recalls Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, uh, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Pretty high praise. But it's also, it's not technique, I don't think. I think it's feeling or experience. What do you think? What do you find in that kind of music, that tradition that you can't find elsewhere? It's timelessness. They're they're themselves. They don't they didn't care about what anybody else thought about who they were and they're themselves and they sing from their soul and you feel it. And that's what ultimately people respond to, the realness of that. And that's the stuff that stay, stands the test of time. Yeah. Well the the title, Indigo, where did that come from? That came from a, a couple of different things. One of the biggest reasons is there came to a point in time in my early 20s, I wasn't sure if music was what I wanted to do. And so a friend of mine invited me to play at this club in Nashville called Indigo, Hotel Indigo. And uh, I wasn't even supposed to play that night. And they said, come on up, Candace. So I played a song. And um, people were like, wow, like, are you a musician? Do you play? And they're like, you really should pursue this. So that was a turning point in my life. Well, among those who have been drawn to your voice, Prince, who said your voice could melt snow. You you worked with him. How did that happen? Yeah, it kind of came as a su- surprise. Um, I was on my Twitter account, <laughs> hanging out in New York, and my phone goes off. And I start getting these messages and stuff from him saying, that, like, who are you? He had just retweeted a video that I had just posted the day before. Um, it's Stay With Me. The, the, the Sam, Sam Smith, Smith song? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It was just a cover of me on the piano and singing. And I guess like, he was drawn to it, and he retweeted it on his page, and he said, this is all you need to <laughs> all his fans, I guess. And on um, it was in 2014, and he had invited me to play at the 30th Purple Rain anniversary. Like, last minute that following weekend so we, next thing I know I'm on a plane going out there and I meet him and got to collaborate with his two bands New Power Generation Quartet and Third Eye Girl Ugh. so you know it's something I'll never forget so you know? many questions what did you sing for the Paisley Park 30th anniversary of uh, Purple sang, Rain I mean I sang First Time Ever I Saw Your Face wow such a powerful song it's my favorite song on the album by far so what was it like meeting Prince I'm so curious about that first encounter he was, he kind of, he, he's always like the element of surprise. It's like his thing. <laughs> so I remember we got, we got there and we're talking to some of his um, staff, I guess. And then this door opens up and there he is. He's like, and I just run up. I was so excited. And I gave him a hug and he, he was a little startled. Like, oh, oh hello. <laughs> and so he said, then the first next thing he wants to do is he just wants to start rehearsing. So he was all about music. And um, we got straight to it and started rehearsing. After we finished our first song, he did a little, and he like, collapsed on the ground. I'm not even kidding you. He literally did that. Was like, I, my mind was blown. <laughs> so, yeah. Before we go, I just want to talk quickly about another one of the songs on the album. It's called Piece of Me. Here's just a little bit of it. How much more can I hear a little bit of Sade in that song. Yes. Candice, <laughs> you're a super gifted singer and songwriter, but what, what would be something that fans would not know about you? 
Um, one of them, I'm slowly, you know, showing the other side of it. I love cars. What? Like I'm a little, a little lady gearhead. So <laughs> I collect cars, tell you all about them. So my latest toy that I just bought is a 1928 uh, T-Bucket. It's got a 454 big block in it. Headers come out the size, loud. So everybody knows I'm coming down the road. So you, you drive cars. around in that in, in, in Nashville? <laughs> yeah, you can see it on my Instagram. I got it on there. That's how we will know Candace Springs. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Well, right on, Candace Springs. So nice to talk with you. Thank you, guys. Peace out. Singer and songwriter Candace Springs. She's performing Sunday at the Atlanta Jazz Festival. It's free and open to the public. She hits the stage at Piedmont Park at 730. And we will leave you more from her Indigo album. This is People Make the World Go Round. People make the world. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. Don Smith, our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor of GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.